Blog Talk Radio. Grassroots Solicit Talk Show. My name is Baba Wesley Gray, speaking to you live from New York City, Sunday evening, March the 20th, 2016. It's really a pleasure to be with you again, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you more information about the book that we reviewed uh, last week titled Food for the Spirit, a Vegetarianism and World Religions, authored by Bhakti Stephen Rosen. As a matter of fact, he happens to be an acquaintance of mine. Um, I've known him, I met him about maybe 25 years ago or so, and um, really a very interesting gentleman. As I mentioned, uh, we're reviewing this book again. Uh, I reviewed it last week, and I'm going to pick off from where we left off. Um, myself, I'm an interfaith minister and also a vegetarian. I've been a vegetarian going on some 26, 27 years. Um, I'm also a marathon runner. I ran 14 New York City marathons. And I share that because I know that a lot of people feel that if you're a vegetarian, that, you know, you you lose weight and you don't have any muscle mass and, you know, you t- tend to think that people are not able to do things that uh, others do who are meat eaters, as it were. But uh, there are numerous uh, athletes in the world who happen to be world-class athletes who run marathons and, and indulge in other rigorous uh, sport activities that one would be surprised to know that, indeed, their diet is a non-meat diet. Um, which leads me into this reviewing an area in the book that talks about uh, the scientific perspective, if you will, regarding vegetarianism. Uh, Dr. Rosen, or Mr. Rosen, goes on to say that before any discussion of the religious and the moral rationale for vegetarianism, an examination of the scientific reasons for avoiding flesh as a food source should be given. He states that modern medicine offers ample evidence of the dangers of meat eating, and that being cancer and heart disease, diabetes, and, and numerous other uh, uh, conditions which are nearly an epidemic proportion as of today, and that's the nations with a high per capita consumption of meat. While there rarely occur in societies where there's little meat consumed, there's also considerable scientific evidence that the teeth, jaws, and the long convoluted intestinal canal in humans are not naturally suited to a diet containing meat. The value, of, the value of this evidence in the present context is that vegetarianism on purely abstract and philosophical grounds rarely lasts. However, without an awareness of the dietary facts and even the most ardent religionists are apt to adapt a meat-oriented diet. On the other hand, however, 
It would be incomplete to adhere to a meatless diet without understanding its deepest meaning in terms of humanity. So he goes on to state that let us briefly outline in the remaining portion of this introduction the protein myth, as it were. That myth being the fear of protein deficiency is why many people never adopt a vegetarian diet. One can get quality protein and all one needs from a non-meat diet, he states. But before answering this question, let us first define protein. It was in 1838 that a Dutch chemist, Carrot John Mudler, isolated a substance containing nitrogen, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and other trace elements. He showed this chemical compound to be the basis for all life, and he named it protein, meaning first rank. It has been subsequently proven that protein is biologically essential. All living organisms must ingest a certain amount of it to, in order to survive. And this it was found to be due to the fact that proteins are composed of amino acids, which are the building blocks of life. And that's all of life. Now, plants can synthesize amino acids from air, earth, and water, but animals are dependent on plants for protein, either directly or by eating plants or indirectly by eating an animal which has eaten uh, metabolized plants. Only the vegetable kingdom is capable of producing protein. Thus, humans have the option of obtaining it directly or with great efficiency from plants, or indirectly and at great expense, both financially and in terms of resources consumed, animal flesh. And one reason for the latter's highest, higher cost is that the animal has been forced to eat a tremendous amount of vegetable proteins in order to reach slaughter weight. There are thus no amino acids in flesh that animals do not derive from plants, or that humans cannot also derive from plants. Moreover, eating foods from the plant kingdom has the added advantage of combining amino acids and other substances that are essential to the proper utilization of protein, carbohydrates, vitamins, minerals, enzymes, hormones, chlorophyll, and other elements that only plants can supply. Vegetarians should know, however, of the theory of food combining, which some scholars say is essential if one wishes to obtain complete proteins. And this concept, better known as protein complementarity, has uh, popularized or was popularized by Francis Moore Lepe in her best-selling book, Diet for a Small Planet. And that's where she explains that complementary proteins are usually put together as a matter of course in a balanced vegetarian diet. So if we eat peanut butter, for example, we smear it on some bread, and this is how one generally eats peanut butter. However, if we use whole grain bread, whole grain bread, we would have a generous amount of protein. And this is how it works. When we eat, the body breaks the protein down into its constituent amino acids. And these are either utilized individually or reassembled into new proteins needed by the body. There are 22 known amino acids, 
14 are non-essential and 8 are essential. Essential here simply means that we cannot manufacture them naturally without, within the body and must get them from our food. The essential amino acids are lysine, isolysine, valine, lysine, and typophining and theranine. All of these must appear according to LAPE in any given meal in the right proportions to have a well-balanced diet. And for this reason, up to the mid-1950s, meat was considered an excellent source of protein. It has all the essential amino acids in the proper proportions. Nonetheless, nutritionists now agree that many vegetarian foods are equal to, if not better than, meat in terms of protein content. For these foods contain all eight amino acids as well. In general, the rule for producing high-protein vegetarian dishes is to combine grains, breads, pasta, etc., with legumes, soybeans, lentils, peanuts, etc., at the same meal and as is done with the previous mentioned peanut butter sandwich. Nuts and seeds combined with legumes or even, or even with uh, cereals also provide a high-protein diet. In milk products, which are included in the diet, there's even less chance of a protein problem, for milk also contains all of the essential amino acids. It has also been determined that many green leafy vegetables and even potatoes have a considerable amount of complete protein. And an eight ounce glass of carrot juice has the same quality and amount of protein as an egg. In 1954, a group of scientists at Harvard University conducted a study and found that when a variety of vegetables, grains, and dairy products were eaten together, the combination produced more than adequate supplies of daily protein. And their report concluded that it was actually quite difficult to eat a varied vegetarian diet that would not exceed protein requirements for the human body. More recently, in uh, 1972, Dr. F. Stair of Harvard conducted his own study of protein intake among vegetarians, and his findings were startling. The majority of subjects were consuming twice their minimal daily protein requirement. Similar studies were conducted by the late Pavo Arello, one of the 12th century's leading authorities on nutrition and natural biology, and his findings conclusively proved that vegetarians need not have a protein problem and that protein is easily, was easily available to them as the meat eater. Now, let's just get into this area which um, Stephen covers regarding meat eating and world hunger. He asks that we consider the following statistics. He states that 1,000 acres of soybeans yields 1,124 pounds of usable protein. That's 1,000 acres. And 1,000 acres of rice yields 938 pounds of usable protein. 1,000 acres of corn yield 1,009 pounds of usable protein. 1,000 acres of wheat yields 1,043 pounds of usable protein. Now consider this. 1,000 acres of soybeans, corn, 
rice, or wheat, when fed to a steer, will yield only about 125 pounds of usable protein. Now, these and other findings point to a disturbing conclusion, and that being that meat eating is directly related to world hunger. Again, let's just state that, that meat eating is directly related to world hunger. So we just deal with the equation, as it were, that 1,000 acres of soybean, which can yield 1,124 pounds of usable protein, 1,000 acres of rice yields 938 pounds of usable protein, 1,000 acres of corn yields 1,009 pounds of usable protein, 1,000 acres of wheat yields 1,043 pounds, and, and that's individually, those particular uh, plants, as it were, and grains. However, it takes the combine, combining of all of these plants and vegetables and grains, 1,000 acres of soybean, corn, rice, or wheat, when fed to a steer, will yield only 125 pounds of usable protein. So that goes on to say that indeed uh, those countries which uh, don't have cows and steer in abundance, if they have an agricultural uh, uh, land base that's able to uh, yield the soybean, the wheat, uh, the corn, etc. And if they have an acre, that might, in terms of my uh, uh, armchair calculations without a calculator, that could yield more than enough for a family of four to eat for a month, as it were. I have to get back to you on that, but I'm just making a, 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 uh, an assessment based on these numbers, which is really outstanding and staggering in terms of... Uh, us buying meat, especially here in the United States, and those of us who are in the lower echelon of the income um, 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 poll, as it were, we consume an excessive amount of meat, and a lot of us could save a lot of money if we became vegetarians. At least give that a consideration. And perhaps you might not want to become a complete vegetarian, you know, but uh, perhaps maybe eliminating meat from your diet for two or three or four days out of the seven, as it were, and eating fruits and vegetables and and grains, and particularly my wife and I, we we eat a lot of meat uh, substitute made out of soybean and tofu, and there's an argument of of course about uh, the health uh, factors of soybean and tofu, and that's. Uh, something we can discuss at another show. But, of course, there's always going to be the naysayers. And, and my um, uh, take on that is that you have those people who are uh, in cahoots, if you will, with the meat industry, in cahoots with the pharmaceutical industry, in cahoots with the allopathic uh, medical community, uh, which states that, indeed, if you don't eat meat, that you're not going to get a sufficient amount of protein. 
and and if you don't eat eggs and and if you don't eat a, just a number of things which one can realize through further uh, investigation and and exercising your due diligence that indeed one is able to get protein from a variety of sources rather than the flesh of an animal. So uh, just going back to what Stephen states, he says that some nutritionists, environmentalists, politicians have pointed out that if the United States was to feed the same grain and soy supply to the poor and starving people of the world as it is fed to livestock, we would wipe out starvation and its corollary horrors. In fact, Harvard nutritionist Jean Meyer estimates that reducing meat production by just 10% would release enough grain to feed 60 million people. It is a matter of record in terms of land, water, and resources. Meat is the most expensive and inefficient food anyone can eat. Only about 10% of the protein and calories that we feed to livestock is returned in the meat those animals provide. In addition, hundreds of thousands of acres of arable land are occupied in raising livestock for food. One acre used to raise a steer provides only about one pound of protein. And that same one acre planted with soybeans will produce 17 pounds of protein. In short, raising animals for food is a tremendous waste of the world's resources. In addition to the loss of farmland, it is estimated that raising livestock consumes eight times more water than growing vegetables, soy, or grains. For the cattle must drink and the crops that feed them must be watered. To summarize, Millions will continue to die of thirst or starvation while a privileged crew consume vast amounts of protein, wasting land and water in the process. Ironically, this same meat is their own body's worst enemy. Now, what does he mean by that? He goes on to state that meat eating and poor health when an animal is slaughtered, the waste products normally taken away by the animal's bloodstream is retained in the decaying flesh. Subsequently, meat eaters absorb into their own bodies the toxic wastes that would otherwise have been expelled from the animal's body as urine. So Dr. Owen Parrott, in his paper, why I Don't Eat Meat notes that when steak is boiled, waste appears as a soluble extract in the form of tea, beef tea, which closely resembles urine when chemically analyzed. Meat in industrialization in industrialized nations that practice extensive agriculture is also loaded with preservatives, that being DDT, arsenic used in cattle feed as a growth stimulant, sodium sulfite used to give meat that fresh red color, and DES, which is a synthetic hormone that is known is a known carcinogen. In fact, meat producers or meat products include many agents that are either carcinogenic 
are metastasizers of cancer. For instance, in just over two pounds of charcoal boiled steak, there is as much benzofurane as contained in the smoke from 600 cigarettes. It says, it's nice to eat a meal and not have a worry about what your food may have died of. That is, if you're a vegetarian. Perhaps the single most compelling argument for a non-meat diet, at least as far as personal health goes, is the undeniable and well-documented correlation between meat eating and heart disease. In America, the highest meat-consuming nations in the, in, the country, in the world, rather, one person out of every two will die of heart or related vascular diseases. These diseases are practically non-existent in cultures where meat consumption is low. The Journal of the American Medical Association reported in 1961 that a vegetarian diet can prevent 90 to 97% of heart disease. Since a non-meat diet lessens cholesterol intake, there is less of a chance of a fat buildup and thus death from a stroke or a heart attack. The condition known as osteoporosis is virtually unknown in the vegetarian world. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, protein obtained from nuts, pulses, grains, and even dairy products is said to be relatively pure as compared with beef, which has 56% impure water content. And such impurity affects not only the heart, but the whole human organism. The human body is a complex machine. And like all machines, some fuels are more appropriate than others to keep it running smoothly. The record shows that meat is a very efficient fuel for the human machine. One that eventually exacts, and I'm sorry, the record shows that meat is a very inefficient fuel for the human machine. And that's one that eventually exacts a severe toll. Eskimos, for instance, who live primarily on meat and fish, age rapidly. And their average lifespan rarely exceeds 30 years. The uh, Eastern Russian people that at one time lived chiefly on meat rarely survive past the age of 40. On the other hand, there are tribes such as the Humza, who live in the Himalayan mountains, or the groups like the Seventh-day Adventists, which is a primary vegetarian Christian group, who tend to live between 80 and 100 years. Researchers cite vegetarianism as the reason for their excellent health and longevity. The Maya Indians of the Yucatan and the Yemenotite tribe of the Sermatic origin are also known for their excellent health. And a low meat, or in some cases a 100% vegetarian diet, is again cited as the main contributory factor for their longevity. I happen to be uh, 72 years of age, and um, I've been told that biologically um, I appear to be 10 to 15 years younger in terms of my appearance, my skin, tone, and um, the way I stand, the way I walk, my voice. Uh, this is the energy that I, I tend to um, uh, present. And I feel very blessed for that. I don't take the credit of that entirely. I was just inspired by the Most High, uh, inspired by the ancestors and, and, and certain friends of mine who I started running with 
uh, going back some 30 years ago, and then when I started running marathons, I ran my uh, 14th marathon in 2010, and this year I'm training for my 15th marathon. I had hoped to run it, had ran it last year, but I uh, sustained an injury, a knee injury, and um, I recognize that my bones and my ligaments are, you know, the muscles are not the way they were some 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So I have to be more scientific with my training. However, with that being said, you know, I have no uh, hesitation to say that, yes, uh, with proper training, that I will continue to run marathons. Uh, now, not everyone needs to run a marathon, of course, and not everyone is capable of doing it, and I don't recommend it to everyone. Um, but I do recommend that you at least walk a half, a half an hour a day, a vigorous walk. You don't have to work up a sweat, but that would be good also. But if you get your, your, your blood flowing in your body and, and the muscles exercise and, 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 and stretching, I recommend yoga. I also recommend meditation. And just a host of things that can benefit the body uh, in terms of uh, proper breathing, uh, breathing and thinking, uh, uh, meditating on your breath, because that's uh, the life force, as, you, as we all know. Um, and also being mindful of what you eat, uh, eliminating junk food from your diet. Uh, the, the, the chain, uh, should I say, the industry of junk food has had a devastating effect, especially within the African-American, those of African descent, uh, the Latino, and even the, the overall community at large, whether whatever uh, nationality and ethnicity that you may be. However, uh, my, my focus is within the African community, within those of African descent, because we have suffered greatly from being conditioned to think that we can survive off food, especially going back some 400 years when we were uh, uh, captured uh, from Africa and made to, to work as slaves, as it were. Um, and we would eat the remnants that came from the house of the so-called master and, and conditioned to think that, yes, it's all right to eat the, the intestines of the pig, uh, so-called chitlins and pig feet, and, and to uh, consider it to be a, a delight when we were able to eat a, have a chicken to, to eat and, and, and other animals. But going back in that period, though, they did not uh, inject the animals with, with uh, steroids, and, and also the plants didn't have uh, pesticides and, and other chemicals which were used to keep them uh, to grow as, as, as tall and to maximize their growth and, and, uh, of the plants as well as the animals and to, dis, you know, to satisfy the bottom line, which was about making as much money as possible. So we've maintained those habits uh, coming from a symptom, symptom of, uh, symptoms of post-traumatic slave uh, symptoms, as it were. And, of course, when you combine that with uh, a certain amount of stress, which we all are subjected to, but those of us in the, uh, in the African community uh, are subjected to it even more so because of the fact that uh, we have racism, uh, we have classism, and sexism, especially our women. 
um, who are the, the uh, they give birth to us. And of course, if anything, they should be optimum in their health practices. And uh, that's a problem. Uh, we have even conditions this present today in Flint, Michigan, where the water supply is contaminated with lead. And then we just found out uh, this past week that here in New York, where I live, uh, that we have a lead problem within our water system as well. Perhaps not as uh, profound and, and not as, uh, as detrimental as it is in Flint, Michigan, but uh, indeed, one has to be so careful and prudent, uh, or if not uh, diligent, as it were, in terms of what goes into our bodies. Uh, my wife and I, we drink bottled water, but even that's not a guarantee. Uh, there's an argument that indeed if water is sold, stored in plastic containers that the chemicals that uh, make up the, the, uh, the, 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 the plastic bottles, uh, those chemicals can leach into the water. And over a period of time, uh, that can have a detrimental effect on uh, our, our body in terms of it going into our bloodstream and into our organs. So it behooves us to uh, exercise uh, or incorporate habits such as cleansing our body. Um, there's various books on fasting. I'm going to be covering, uh, reviewing books rather, in, in future shows uh, regarding fasting and cleansing uh, the various organs in the body. My wife and I uh, went through a liver cleanse um, protocol a couple of weeks ago, and we're about to in, in, engage in a, a kidney cleanse. And uh, that's also, I think I will review that in next uh, Sunday's show, uh, the, the process that we incorporated in terms of the liver cleanse and the one that we plan to incorporate it for, the, to, for the kidney cleanse. So, yes, indeed, the, the, the whole theory is that you are what you eat. And there's something that was shared uh, when I first started running uh, with long-distance runners. I think that was when it was shared with me. Uh, we have a park in Brooklyn, Prospect Park, and that's a 3.5-mile uh, radius in, inside the, the, uh, the, the park in terms of where the runners and bikers bike and so forth and where the runners run. And... It's just such a, 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 a blessing that I was able to take on that particular uh, sport uh, of running. I used to smoke cigarettes. I even smoked marijuana, and I drink alcohol and would party and not get sufficient uh, sleep. I would start maybe Friday, no, well, Fridays into Sunday, for that matter, um, along with myself being a, a drummer. I was... A, uh, I'm a African djembe drummer, but I started off as a kunga uh, percussionist, and then I went into playing uh, uh, jazz drums, traps, as it were, playing a drum set. But uh, I would play in bands, and we would do nightclub gigging and wedding receptions and, and just a host of, of activities, musical-related uh, with performance, that did not uh, bode well with us in terms of our um, healthy, uh, non-healthy habits. Uh, of course, I, I, I just digress, forgive me, please. But uh, yes, this is saying that I, 
I, I was really uh, uh, moved by, and that being in the running community, that the body keeps score. And I heard that when I was in my late 20s for the first time. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm 72 years of age. And indeed, uh, I can allude and, and really uh, uh, agree with that wholeheartedly that the body indeed does keep score. So those of you who might be young adults or even uh, uh, teenagers, you know, youngsters as it were, to those who are middle-aged, millennials, so-called millennials, uh, baby boomers, <laughs> those of us who are elders, it is never too late to start um, uh, keeping score. And what I mean by that is uh, developing habits that are like a deposit, those healthy habits that you assume beginning today in terms of dealing with the essence of now. I think of Erhard Tolle, uh, his book, The Power of Now, and, and the other one titled A New Earth. But nothing is more important than now, not, not yesterday, not tomorrow, but now in terms of health. Yes, I think that history uh, going into uh, especially those of us who are African-American or those of us who are of African descent, we need to know our story so that we can know uh, who we are. We have to know where we came from so we we'll know where we are now and, and where we are destined to be going um, in the future. However, with regarding health, we, we need to know a little bit of history in terms of uh, uh, what our health habits were uh, going back, you know, as I mentioned earlier, 400 years um, and even beyond then, but especially since we were brought to this country and, and had to uh, be forced to, to work for, for no wages, to be slaves, as it were, and to eat the, the remnants of, 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 the, of the house that was cast away and to eat those animals uh, that uh, were non-desired, at least those parts of the animals that were not desirable for consumption by the powers that be, or the powers that were. That uh, now we have control, we have in, in our hands, what's in your hand? You know, what's in your hand to put into your mouth, as it were, or to put into your body? We have the capacity to make a decision to do the right thing for ourselves for our family, for our loved ones, and for each other. So if anything can be good in terms of peer pressure, that would be to inspire and, and to uh, uh, really uh, make, it, uh, make a commitment towards each other for us to have a more healthier life practice, as it were. So with that being said, I'm going to take a short break. And, um, and then I'll be back with you momentarily. Uh, those of you who are in the chat room, if you'd like to speak with me, uh, we don't have any guests this evening. Uh, and by the way, uh, Dr. Chris Saltball will be an, uh, a guest on the show uh, within the near future, if not next week, the following week. And um, for those of you who are not familiar with Dr. Chris Saltball, he's a naturopathic um, physician and a doctor, and, and uh, he has this a, a plethora of, of, of you know, this uh, so much knowledge in terms of uh, how to be healthy from a naturopathic perspective and, and how to heal yourself 
uh, become healed from a naturopathic uh, perspective. Uh, and also, please uh, visit my website. That's uh, drumsofchange.com. And the books that I review, such as this book, Food for the Spirit, by Stephen Ross, Stephen Rosen, rather, that can be purchased on, at my site. I have a drum store, and I have a bookstore. Uh, and also, there's an income opportunity that I have listed in the menu section on the left, upper left-hand side of the website. So, again, I'll be with you momentarily. We're just going to take a short break. Invigorating when we play the drums, we're playing the energy of the heartbeat, as it were. And as the saying goes, the first drum you've ever heard was the beating of our mother's heart, and that's why it's so liberating and so spiritually um, based, as it were. Uh, we hear that energy, that rhythm, as it were, before we are given birth to, before we come into the world. And also we honor the ancestors and the Most High. So I'm very uh, grateful. And, and again, thank you for tuning in and listening to our show. Uh, my name is Baba Wesley Grace, bringing to you live from New York City here um, the 20th of March, 2016. Uh, so let's continue uh, with uh, Dr. Uh, Mr. Rosen, rather. The human body is a complex machine. Like all machines, some fuels are more appropriate than others to keep it running smoothly. The record shows that meat is a very inefficient fuel for the human machine, one that eventually exacts a severe toll. Eskimos, for example, who live primarily on meat and fish age rapidly and their average lifespan rarely exceeds 30 years. So when eating meat, human beings disguise it in a variety of ways using ketchup, sauces, and gravies, and they age it, tenderize it, fry it, boil it, and transform it in a thousand different styles. So why the uh, charade? Why all the effort to avoid eating meat raw? As all true carnivorous animals do, Many nutritionists, biologists, and physiologists offer convincing evidence that humans are in fact not meant to eat 
meet. They propose that people are not physiologically suited to a carnivorous diet and that the reason they disguise it is that it is an unnatural food. Physiologically, people are more akin to plant eaters, foragers and grazers, such as monkeys, elephants, and cows, than to, than to the carnivorous animals such as dogs, tigers, and leopards. For example, the carnivorous animals do not sweat through their skin. Body heat is controlled by the rapid breathing and the extrusion of the tongue. Vegetarian animals, on the other hand, have sweat pores for heat control and the elimination of impurities. Carnivores have long teeth and claws for holding and killing prey. Vegetarian animals have short teeth and no claws. The saliva of carnivorous animals contain no pilothin or cannot predigest starches that are vegetarians, animal-based. The flesh-eating animals secrete large qualities of hydrochloric acid to help dissolve bones. Vegetarian animals secrete little hydrochloric acid. The jaws of the carnivorous animals open in a up and down motion, and those of the vegetarian animals also move sideways for additional kinds of chewing. Carnivores must lap liquids like a cat. Vegetarian animals take liquids in by suction through the teeth. There are many such comparisons, and in each case, humans fit the vegetarian physio-analytical base that we just explained earlier. And he also states that even if the scientific facts didn't tally, there are compelling spiritual reasons for vegetarianism. Consider, for instance, that the word spiritual comes from the Latin spiritus, meaning breath, vigor, or life. The word vegetarian comes from the Greek vigidus, or full of breath of life. And the two words affirm their interrelation. Along these same lines, it may be worthwhile to note that the words carnal or carnivorous comes from the same root, which is the Latin carnis, meaning flesh. All religious scriptures suggest that we should avoid carnality, and in the biblical tradition, that which is carnal belongs distinctly to the world, world of flesh as opposed to spirit. The connection between vegetarianism and religion, however, goes beyond semantics and ultimately touches upon the very essence of religious truth, for instance. It is often reasonably postulated that God naturally loves his works, which include not only humans, but all other species of life. If this basic tenet is accepted, then no living entity is beyond the scope of God's compassion, and no unnecessary killing would be approved. The theological basis for vegetarianism is essentially and especially prominent in Hinduism. In the West, it was upheld by the early Jews and even the ancient Greeks, such as the uh, people named as Socrates and Plato, who termed vegetarianism or anti-flesh eating. God's compassion and love for his creation denote another often overlooked reason for vegetarianism. 
with the mounting scientific evidence that a meatless diet offers a more healthful life and that eating flesh shortens one's lifespan, reason dictates that God would choose a vegetarian diet for his children. Why would one who loves his creation desire its quick demise? Clearly, he would not. In fact, he would take great pains to ensure its longevity. Accordingly, God tries time and again in the scriptures to assure his children that vegetarianism is the best possible diet for him. Mainstream religions, particularly in the West, have minimized this idea. But nonetheless, we will show that universal religious thought promotes universal compassion and condemns the opposite. The unnecessary slaughter of living beings as fundamentally irreligious. So there, my friends, brothers and sisters, I, I again, delighted to be able to share this information with you from such books such as Food for the Spirit by Stephen Rosen. It gives, you know, an explanation, or he gives an explanation of why we should consider the lifestyle of becoming a vegetarian. And at least to diminish the consumption of meat in our diets. And as I stated earlier, I know that this is something that one cannot just jump on the bandwagon with and start, you know, cold turkey or, and no pun intended, by the way, but this is start, you know, right away with just eliminating meat from your diet. But I do recommend that perhaps you might want to take one, two, three, four days gradually to eliminate one a day out of the week from um, you know abstain from eating meat and uh, doing your research exercise your due diligence in terms of what are the foods what are the plants what are the vegetables what are the grains and nuts legumes and so forth that supply you with equal amount of protein earlier I mentioned how uh, a glass of carrot juice has more than the amount of protein than one egg. And, of, of course, I remind all of you that uh, this is information that I'm sharing with you is, is, is merely information for, um, for you to peruse or to uh, digest, but we recommend that you consult your doctor and do your own due diligence and research before you practice any of the things that I have discussed on this show. So again, uh, I thank you for tuning in. Uh, that concludes uh, this evening's show, and I look forward to uh, reviewing more of the content of Food for the Spirit by Stephen Rawson. And of course, please share uh, this with your friends and family and friends. Spread the word and have them tune in. And of course, uh, we have uh, an archive so that you can direct them to uh, our website at blogtalkradio.com uh, forward slash grassroots um, holistic health. Again, this is Baba Wesley Gray speaking with you, and uh, we look forward to tuning in and again next week. We give praise to the Most High. We give praise to our ancestors. We ask that indeed that the coming week will be one of, of blessings, 
that we would be able to accomplish those that those things that we uh, aspire to accomplish and that we maintain our health and those of you who are being challenged that your health is increased with God's mercy and blessings. So peace and love, Hotep, Assalamu alaikum, Shalom, Hetepu, and we will meet again next week. <laughs>